Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, hosts Ann and Nick are back with a new episode with special guest Brian Wickersham, Chief Development Officer, and Jeremy Crawford, Chief Legal Officer of Pleasantries, the first Michigan-founded company to become an MSO that is vertically integrated and serving adult use and medical customers in Michigan and Massachusetts. In this episode, Ann and Nick chat with Brian and Jerome about the company's focus on the Michigan market and what has led to the brand's success in that tough environment. The group also touches on why Pleasantries has focused on operations in highly competitive markets and what has allowed them to thrive where most other operators have failed. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Brian Wickersham and Jerome Crawford of Pleasantries. All right, great to be with you both, Brian and Jerome. Thanks so much for uh, for joining Ann and I today on the Green Rush, guys. Thanks for having us. Really uh, appreciate you reaching out and extending the invite. Yeah, glad to be here. We're excited about it. Yeah, so let let's get started. And the first place we always really like to start with our audience is, you know, how were you guys both first introduced to the cannabis industry, and when did you have the realization that you could pursue a a, a fully above board legitimate career in this space? Jerome, why don't you want me to lead? So, so this, is Brian, yeah, this is Brian Wickersham uh, uh, starting off here. But my, I was first introduced in a uh, probably a more unique way than most. Uh, my introduction to the industry itself was uh, at 2018 MJ Biz. Uh, it may have been 2017. I'm going to be yelled at for not knowing, but I was a, a bachelor party attendee of our co-founder uh, or our founder and CEO, Randy Buckman. So he uh, did the old slam bang a business conference along with his bachelor party. So I caught the tail end of it. I was not in cannabis at the time, but, you know, entered Las Vegas onto the scene of this you know, uh, head scratching environment for me, at least, uh, at the time trying to understand it because as a cannabis enthusiast and, you know, somebody who's, who's been around it for you know most of my adult life, it's, uh, I didn't know that, that it had been legitimized to that aspect yet. Uh, and it was just shocking to me. Um, so, you know, when, when I finally had the realization that I could pursue a career here, um, you know, frankly, it was a little bit by circumstance. Uh, I, I mentioned, you know, I was attending his bachelor party. It's, it's because Randy is a lifelong friend of mine. I've known him for 20 years uh, and, you know, a little bit, I guess, just talking about the, the story of pleasantries as, as well. Uh, he started doing this in, in 2009. Um, he's been doing it for quite some time when it was a bit of a gray market. And when him and I were graduating from Michigan State together, uh, he wanted me to go do this with him. Uh, I, I, you know, was not in the position, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I had some help from, from my parents getting through college. And I was not in the position that, to tell them that I was going to take this degree 
and go start growing weed in Randy's dad's basement with him. Uh, it just wasn't no, you didn't think that'd work? No, no, it just was not going to work out that way. Um, so I, I don't know when I ever had the realization, but I always kind of followed through, you know, my, my good friend and knew what was happening and really kind of opened my eyes to it uh, at MJ Biz back in 2018. I mean, kudos for the multitasking bachelor party and MJ BizCon. I was at those first couple, like 2018, 19 and or 17, 18, and it was a sight to see. Yes. Yes. Jerome, what about you? So we're all about efficiency here, as you can tell, <laughs> you know, we, we, we get her done. You know, mine was, was far less uh, ceremonious as, as Brian just shared. Um, so I'm the lawyer in the room, presently sitting to see Jerome Crawford as chief legal officer of Pleasantries and have been with us, uh, man, two years next month, time flies. Um, you know, my world is I am an attorney by trade. I've lived in various sectors of legal industry, right? So both from big law firms, think suits on USA to uh, being in-house counsel, uh, various companies, uh, both in automotive industry, kind of, you know, automotive adjacent consumer facing more on the private side, public sector, private sector. Uh, and so cannabis and even, and, and Brian knows this was such a new thing to me in the sense that I was the guy that never even tried it growing up. Friends did knock yourself out. Just not my thing. Nothing against it. We didn't have much variety back then either. Right. You want Reggie, you want Kush, that's all you got. Um, so uh, my introduction to it ironically came through sort of my firm relationships and personal relationships. Um, somewhere around 2017, 18, that same time frame, and then definitely by 2019, actually Ben Sopchak, who was our former CLO, uh, and then the first person to sort of sit in the attorney seat, for initially from the outside and representing pleasantries, uh, and then now we still uh, hire him as outside counsel on special projects. He helped recruit me into this company. Prior to him coming to pleasantries, um, he was a bit of a pioneer, uh, like a Randy, in a sense that um, law firms were not doing this type of work. Right. And many law firms weren't gung ho. They were like, wait a minute, are they going to drop off briefcases of cash every two weeks or how are they going to pay their legal bills? Um, there's also just it's a bit of a faux pas. Right. There was a bit of a stigma, as you can imagine, um, from somebody having a cannabis practice on their firm's Web page and on the website. Um, nonetheless, Ben was diving into it head head first. And he'd be the first to tell you that he said, uh, unlike me, he had been high for 20 years. And this is his words out of his own mouth and said, I've been through law school the whole way. And so him being also uh, a long-term friend I've known for about 12 years now um, said, hey, why don't you come to the firm and we'll do this kind of work together. Uh, and I was intrigued by it. It didn't make sense at that time to go to the firm and little did I know um, and, or him about six months later, he ended up leaving the firm from the time that I was looking at him going back. I was first phone call he made. He said, when I get here, I know I'm going to need you as this thing gets bigger. Let's grow it out and kind of do it together. Um, so I realized it could be legitimate around the time that I saw, you know, I call it adjacent industry service providers like myself, when you're a lawyer on the outside in and you look at lawyers, looking at accountants, you know, especially from established firms and companies, and you got new vendors, which we know very well, sometimes they're new as us, um, that are starting up and doing their thing. When they start supporting an industry, you say, okay, there's legitimate career opportunity here. Um, and so my foray into it is that, um, I, been a corporate generalist for many years, right? And and a various levels of industry was able to bring what it means to know how to run a legal department and a company. And when you're a startup company, there's so many factors to that. Um, but then we have the intricacy of our cannabis law, which probably isn't super thick, 
but there's still something to be said um, about bringing that expertise. So um, we were really a tag team, had a legal department as many as four at one time. And now that we're in sort of hyper ops focused mode, as we'll talk more about in part of this conversation, um, we sort of leaned that down even more. Um, and so my background expertise is really fitting for kind of where we come from, but also also where we're going. So uh, new can be legitimate. And here we are. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, this, you know, you're kind of in a position that we that we were into. We were, you know, a PR and investor relations firm on the outside ancillary service provider. Um, what made you both make this leap, um, you know, into let's just say plant touching and, and, you know, how did you guys, how did pleasantries come to be? Take it away, Wick. Well, pleasant pleasantries, I guess is, is it's, it's Randy's, you know, story and, and he's developed it to this team and this family of people that started off well before pleasantries was in existence. Um, he graduated, uh, as I mentioned with me in 2008, uh, 2009 is when Michigan passed the caregiver laws, uh, enabling uh, you know folks to register as caregivers, cultivate their own plants, register their patients, provide for their patients. Um, there was a tremendous amount of gray in those rule sets, as I'm sure there are in you know the other states that had similar types of pathways to legalization. Um, but ultimately, uh, he leaned into it uh, because he saw an opportunity to make a buck. Um, he operated in that caregiver space for several years up until, uh, Jerome probably knows the actual year better when legalization took place in Michigan, when he effectively, you know, closed or, or sold off all of his caregiver operations to legitimize itself and say, you know, if this is where the industry is going, this is where I need to, to move to. Um, and kudos to him because, you know, I, I really do see him as a pioneer in the state as it uh, relates to the legalization of cannabis, as he really was on the forefront from, um, call it cannabis people uh, getting involved in legislation versus just high dollar people getting involved in legislation. There was no special interest there. He was just frankly... Um, you know, the person who was able to position himself in enough rooms that uh, he was propped forward as a, a voice of cultivation to regulators. He was sitting on special boards and special councils of Michigan's government when they were forming these rules and working closely with, you know, Ben that Jerome previously mentioned and frankly drafting um, some of the skeleton of, of Michigan's legislation. Uh, and it helped to really, you know, tie that bridge from caregiver phase into license industry phase and, and frankly never look back. The, the challenge with that is when you are, I think, you know, at least in my opinion, um, somebody who comes from frankly pretty normal upbringing, you know, grinding away at this, uh, just somebody who's really what you think about when you think of of somebody who grew up in the cannabis community uh who wasn't resourced you know like some of these other companies that were lobbying the state and actually spending big dollars he was just the one navigating the waters but it it you know so we were started by that that pursuit of wanting to get out of that caregiver traditional market space and move into the license space uh and we you know frankly uh, were capitalized by a lot of friends and family. 
and people who believed in in you know the the dream and the team has continued to build itself out until where we're at today and there's a whole bunch that happened in between and I'm sure we'll touch on some of that through through our conversation here but um really you know grassroots story of a caregiver who transitioned into the licensed space and uh was really hard-nosed and and ear to the ground to, to raise the capital to be able to actually make a jump into uh, a bit more scale. So I'll add some quick color, uh, just as a dovetail to what Brian just shared. First and foremost, there's two species of, of statutes that pass in our state that coincide with Randy's decision-making, right? When um, naturally you had the original sort of caregiver laws and what medical marijuana is in our state is, again, as, as early as 2009, when he began that path. And then you had in 2016, the MMFLA, which is the Medical Marijuana Facilities and Licensing Act, 2018, two years later, essentially we went wrecked. And that's when you have the Michigan uh, Regulation and Taxation of Marijuana Act. So those two species of, of, of statutes came together and then a waterfall effect of various local ordinances that flow from there. I want to borrow a phrase that Brian just shared that's really important. He mentioned cannabis people. So when we think about the core of who we are, and we often say this, is that we're cannabis people that got into the business, not business people that got into cannabis, right? And so you have some folks that brought the, hey, here's the trust fund money, and we wanted to dive in. We don't understand. Um, and the reason people, I think, uh, admire the pleasantry story is, one, it's very personal. Look at Brian and I sitting here today. We just shared with you two individuals that are personal relationships that brought us in right? Cannabis people, right? That got into the business. Um, and even my, you know, I joked that I was the newbie with respect, not so much anymore. I should know R&D is great. <laughs> with respect to being a new, newbie, you know, in that regard, what I'm not new to is a really important aspect of cannabis and cannabis people that get it. Cannabis isn't new. Weed isn't new, right? It's not like we just got here. Um, so for me, I love the social equity piece. Even when I came on board, I still hold you know that mantle of making sure a company does what we can and should in that space. But for me, I've always been super passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion or DE&I work. Um, this wasn't even scope when I sat down and actually talked with Randy um, about coming on board. Just kind of our wheels needs to start to spin and said, wait a minute, somebody should be leading that here for us too. And that became a part of my old title, part of my role, and it's something that is really um, part of the, of the mantra of our company. So that's something when I, when I, when I think of myself as a cannabis person because I've always been about, you know, this industry having a really interesting sort of past war on drugs being really more about war on people and war on poverty. Mm -hmm. and there's no secret about that. And then what's the responsibility of operators, legislators, and regulators today? And so we we do our you know best we can with the small slice of that pie that we own. Um, and that's really, I think, about how we got here today. It's about people that have always been connected to the core of what a cannabis consumer is about, an appreciator, uh, and then really bringing it to the masses. Before we get to the next question that Nick is going to ask, I don't know that we have fully defined what Pleasantries is today. So in what's your elevator pitch? Pleasantries is... So Pleasantries is a uh, vertically integrated operator operating in both Michigan and Massachusetts. Uh, in Michigan, we certainly pride ourselves on uh, the high quality and consistency of our finished products. Um, our core uh, as a business is cultivators. Uh, you know, as mentioned, our founder was a cultivator. Um, we continue to expand and really found uh our excellence in production and manufacturing. And retail was really the last piece of the puzzle. And at this point in time, we have five open retail locations in Michigan. 
Uh, we continue to expand that footprint and work to uh, continue to just spread our geography so everybody within the state has access to our products through our own outlets. That said, um, Michigan is you know unique in the sense that uh, everybody kind of took a different path. We we went cultivation heavy first. It's what we really excel at. And now we're building out that retail aspect. On the flip side, there were a lot of folks that went retail heavy first, and now we're building out that cultivation aspect. And the worlds are kind of colliding, and everybody's you know moving towards vertical insulation. Um, but that that is certainly our story: is a vertical operator within Michigan, um, roughly seventy thousand square feet of cultivation, uh, twenty seven thousand square feet now of of processing. Uh, in a continual growth on a retail footprint. Can't you tell you're talking to the chief development officer right there? Does he, the figures are ready. The elevator pitch is always <laughs> money tight. He gives the best tours, by the way, I should know. Brian had that ready to go, but I, that tour I'm, I'm definitely going to have to to get on because, you know, Jerome, I thought you did, you know, as you guys both have been talking about it, the cannabis people, but a big important part of that story of Pleasant Trees is you guys are also Michigan people. And I think too often we get people on here that are New Jersey people and all that. And I know Anne is, is New Jersey person. Not that it's, there's it's anything fun. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, but I'm excited because we have Michigan people that those are my people. Um, both my parents are from Michigan. Uh, they met at Michigan state. You guys both went to Michigan state, you know, Spartan dogs, big, big up on that. Um, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people, when they think about Michigan, they think about Detroit and then the great lakes and there's nothing else. Um, and so I'd love for you guys to just expand a little bit more on, you know, what's it look like in Michigan right now for, for the cannabis marketplace. And, and, and Brian, if you could also expand a little bit on your last answer there, like, um, you know, what makes this market really unique? Yeah, I, I think the uniqueness of the market is is frankly because on, at a national level, and I think this is changing, and I think it's changed rapidly, frankly, over the last two to three years, just based on conversations that I have. But Michigan, I don't think, you know, uh, prior to legalization here was known as a, a cannabis state or, you know, heavy into cannabis culture. But the, the reality is, is that cannabis has been really heavy in Michigan uh, for a very, very long time. And even when you look at our, our caregiver laws and when they were put into play where it actually started to scale up in legitimacy, I mean, there's people now in our state where it is very common that they have you know, anywhere from 15 plus years of cultivation experience. And when you look at these new states coming online one after another, I don't think that that's within the state itself. Uh, I think you're recruiting from outside the state and bringing them into your state to get that type of experience. You know, you're going to find the California growers and the West Coast growers and bringing them out to the Midwest or the East Coast. That's not the case in Michigan. And, you know, Michigan growers will, will tell you that they have no problem putting their flower, you know, toe to toe with anybody across the country, because again, it's been happening in this state for a very, very long time at a very, you know, open level, frankly. Um, so I think that's something that's that's very unique is people looked at Michigan perhaps as a new opportunity or an untapped opportunity. The reality is it's been here for a very, very long time. And that's what makes operating in the license market, you know, frankly, challenging to a certain extent is because um, 
you're trying to effectively take over a commerce market that's been in existence for a very, very long time. Um, and the reality is, is that, uh, and me and Jerome, you know, fully believe this, there should never be another day where somebody goes, you know, to, to jail again for a cannabis crime. So the state has this really difficult challenge in front of them of how do I enforce a licensed market when an unlicensed market is is so prevalent? And, you know, what do we do there? Um, I don't necessarily have all the answers to that, but I think that is something that makes uh, Michigan inherently unique compared to a state like New Jersey or like uh, uh Massachusetts, where I'm not suggesting that cannabis hasn't been there forever, um, but in terms of actually being cultivated there and grown there and being in the community there versus being shipped in there are two different things, in, in my opinion, um, just in terms of just the authenticity of the product, the knowledge of the consumer base, uh, the passion of the people that operate in the space in this market. I, I just think it's a great unknown at a national level that it, we are that, you know, uh, experienced and and just ingrained with what's going on versus, oh, there's a new market in Michigan a few years ago that opened up. You know, I wonder when they're going to level out. No, we, we've leveled out. The, the products here are not, you know, what you're seeing on the East Coast or in some of these other Midwest states. They've been you know, top notch since we've, we've gone out. And because of that, it just has created a hyper competitive landscape. There's no free passes. There's no low hanging fruit. Um, and I don't think people really have a good appreciation for that. People yeah. often say, sorry, Ann, I no, say, please go. if you can make it in Michigan, you can make it anywhere. Um, and, and Nick shot, appreciate the shout outs for Michigan state, go green. We always love it. Um, and as you can see, we love New Jersey too. And Brian made appreciate point that. To put I that in there. That. Good, good, good New Jersey plug. You know, they, the reason that's said is in part what, what Brian just shared is that there's a collision between quality of process and product because we have that. We have this existing kicker market around a long time. And you have a state that also has uh, an un, uncapped license, you know, market as well. So the participants are as many as can come in. So how do you come in and in some respects overtake a market that's already existed? We can, we refer to it sometimes as the gray market because the, the law was sort of gray. It wasn't completely legalized and you didn't have the medical licensing act that existed in 2016. You're kind of in this in-between though. Um, and so there's a way of paying homage to frankly, the pioneers, our founder, and CEO Randy is one of those same folks, but said, hey, I got to hang up my caregiver card if I'm going to be able to go into this industry over here. And, and Brian illuminated beautifully. Yeah, the the challenge is the message sometimes gets conflated between oh, if you're saying you want to shut down that side of the market to create a to create a regulated market, people going to prison. Absolutely not. We would never stand for that. We put out statements around that. I liken it's a good analogy. I love to talk about is if you're doing homebrew in your basement, right? Knock yourself out, man. Give some of the family in the holidays. Bring them on by. But the moment you go out and try to compete with like Anheuser Busch, you're probably gonna they're gonna have an issue with that, right? Well, that doesn't mean you're not going to still want to get your cannabis at other like it doesn't mean that, you know, you can like you grow one, you know, one plant and you're done. Like you're still going to want I, I may brew beer in my bathtub, but I'm still going to go get a six pack at BevMo. You're still going to go to six pack. And then if yeah. you want to fill that six pack, then you're going to have 
kind of be sort of the same quality and licensing right. stuff. So our state right. is even going through that right now. We've had a regime change at the at our regulator level. I call that our referee. And if you want to play by the rules again, the referee's got to enforce the rules. Steph Curry is my favorite basketball player. But if you don't enforce the rules against like Marcus Smart and the Boston Celtics, he can run out of bounds and foul as many times he wants. Well, guess what? Steph doesn't look that good anymore. Marcus Smart is a Hall of Famer now. So for to allow the cream to rise in the top in this hyper-competitive market that we're in, I think we've got to do a better job of figuring out what other bounds are all operating within. It's also essential to the survival uh, and, frankly, ultimate thriving of our industry in a state like Michigan because it's a unique place. We really, you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I mean, I feel like what you're saying, you know, we have a question here about scaling. And, um, you know, it's almost, I think a lot of operators think, like, to your point, like, if you, if you, if you build one, like, oh, my gosh, you've done it, and you can, like, just replicate that process. But what it sounds like is that that's not the case here. Uh, you know, and Jerome, you're smiling and you're, and you're nodding your head. So like, you know, talk a little bit about that. Like, it sounds like each one, you almost have to start from scratch because the market is so overly licensed for lack of a better word. Yeah. I'll take an approach that I think is off forgotten, uh, at least in Michigan. And I'm sure other states deal with this as well. People think about the state law a lot <clears throat> and the federal law distinction that comes up a ton is, oh, federally illegal still. And so many states are their own version of legal. <clears throat> Excuse me. What people aren't talking a lot about are the local level, the municipal level. The reason it's challenging the scale is because you can be great in one city and you cross that city line to another one and either they don't have a local ordinance or they do that's wildly different. There may be mm -hmm. the medical loan, not medical land rec. They have a different process for how you even try to get one of those licenses. Uh, everything from a lottery to a so-called competitive process to somebody had their foot in the door with the mayor three terms ago, right? So there's a variety of ways that make scaling very difficult. Uh, and then what's going on in those cities also increases what your competition might look like. I mean, Detroit makes a lot of the headlines because they are a unique city that was one of the first to really go head first uh, under MFLA and say, hey, we got a ton of these med dispensaries even prior to that, right? They were very much in the gray market. And then now they still can't figure out rec. Uh, and it's challenging to both the current operators and the folks that seek to operate and they're butting heads consistently. So scaling is quite difficult. Um, if I'm taking angle, talk about it from the municipal level, because that's another layer of government that, in my opinion, they're, they're the gatekeeper, right? The state said, hey, we've legalized, do what you want. But it doesn't matter if a city does not let you operate a licensed business within the bound of that actual city. So that makes it makes it quite challenging. You have to be strategic about where you go. This is why if you ever look at certain companies and you say, why are there these border towns or cities never heard of? Because that's where they could go. Like I get called, people say like, hey, I'm looking to open up somewhere. And I go like, you can't just pick and choose your city. Yeah. You know, it's about where where the laws develop in and where your opportunities are. 100%. We faced that issue. My dad and I back in here in Arizona had tried to open a medical dispensary when the law first passed in 2010. And we we're like, oh, our, our, we live right next to like the sixth busiest intersection in the whole state. This is great. Let's put a, let's put a shop right here. There, you got to have a freestanding building. You got to have all these different rules and stuff. And then it ended up being there was only one location in the entire town where that could fit. And the guy's like, nah, I'm not selling the, not working with cannabis well, business. Well, and to Ann's point, that's what makes it so tremendously difficult to scale up, um, particularly out of state. Uh, scaling up in state is difficult because states are, at least Michigan, Michigan's large landmass. And uh, to the guy that knew the guy about where the property had to be, you got to do that in all 700 cities uh, and hope that you hit a few. So we are, you know, spending a lot of 
um, effort related to pursuits and in, in opening up. And it takes a lot of time and effort, frankly, going to the planning commission meetings, going to the city council meetings without having a local pulse on what's happening. Uh, it makes scaling up nearly impossible unless you have capital. Capital changes a lot of things. Um, but as I let in, that, that's not us. We, you know, we're the scrappy group that keeps finding a way, you know, to take those next steps forward. We're not the group with, uh, you know, uh, a good uh, endless source of capital to lean on and rely on. Um, so it's it's challenging, certainly. And, and I think that plays really well into our, the next topic we want to hit on, Brian, is um, you, know, you mentioned earlier you guys got five retail locations in, in Michigan. But back in February, you guys also opened up your second dispensary in Amherst, Massachusetts. How has expanding on a little bit what you just touched on there, you know, how has that experience been evolving into an MSO from a single state operator? Uh, challenging to say, to say the least. And I, I, you're probably not, you know, surprised to hear me say that based on my last answer, but, uh, it was difficult. I mean, look, going back to 2019, uh, again, this is, if you picture the time frame, Michigan rec laws had just passed. There was really a lot of, of movement happening in Michigan as a Michigan startup, you know, you start to see what's happening at the national landscape. And I think probably, you know, uh, Many folks, maybe more than had the ability to 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 execute um, quickly and effectively, had this had a grandiose MSO, you know, vision and, and dream, and we we weren't uh, immune to that. We we did as well, and we were having those phone calls. We were, you know, looking at opportunities in Ohio, in Illinois, in Massachusetts. And really, Massachusetts was an opportunistic um, um, deal that came our way uh, that seemed to make sense at the time um, that we were moving forward on, you know, very, very quickly. Uh, shortly thereafter, this thing called COVID happened in uh, our $30 million cultivation project that we were, you know, completing financing on. Um, was dealing with all of the drastic supply chain and cost increased challenges that, you know, the world was dealing with in the summer of 2020, you know, fall of 2020 leading into 21. In our $30 million cultivation project, and keep in mind, we're cultivators by, by core and background, uh, unfortunately, was now 55 million. And when you look at something like that, just over the course of, you know, materials, lead times, uh, just supply chain challenges, uh, the reality is, is we did not think that it penciled out anymore um, to really move forward with that project. Uh, looking at us as a company who's raised um, roughly $20 million in equity capital uh, to take a leap of that size into one project that, you know, is not in our backyard that we can't keep the pulse on as quickly. It just didn't seem to make as much sense. Um, when you couple that with the fact that uh, having a couple stores operating in the Massachusetts market, you're able to get a good viewpoint of, you know, what that market is doing, what the cost per pound is, you know, relaying that back into your production pro forma, and then looking at, shoot 18 to 24 months of construction because of these schedule and lead time issues that we're having, what's the price per pound going to be in Massachusetts, you know, and we're having this conversation in, in early 21, mid 21, 
what's the price of, uh, per pound in Massachusetts going to be in, in mid-23 when we come online? If it's going to look anything like Michigan, I, I don't know if that's necessarily you know, a venture that makes, makes sense for us uh, at the cost of capital uh, and the cost of construction during this time. So, you know, frankly, it's Massachusetts has, you know, openly and honestly been a, a challenge and a struggle with us uh, or for us um, because we just were not able to get the production and cultivation facility off the ground as anticipated due to some, some challenges. We, we look at it now as a bit of a godsend um, because to have that type of obligation on that type of debt um, in a market that uh, right is now, yeah. crashing quickly. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, frankly, it's, it's probably a blessing that it, that it never did uh, effectively commence. But when we look at that and we look at our overall strategy and as you know, anybody um, in our space that has uh, uh, at least our group of investors, folks are, you know, do at some point in time plan for the future and want to see an exit, want to see a liquidity event. The national landscape has matured over the last two to three years as well. And when you look at, you know, who would be a potential acquirer of a company like us, um, I don't think that Massachusetts becomes attractive. Uh, and when you're looking at the overall package, because most of these guys are already in Massachusetts and Massachusetts, mm -hmm. is, you know, most of the folks listening may know. Uh, is a capped market. There's only so much you can do there. Um, so it becomes a little bit of a, a challenge where you have to work on selling some of these assets off. And we're seeing that on some of the larger scale M&A transactions in, in the national space um, of, you know, these companies having to effectively go sell off assets on day one. It almost makes it a bit more of a complicated transaction. When we look at our, you know, plan and our strategy, Look at Michigan, and if I were to ask you two, who have a pretty good pulse on the market, who are the big MSOs that are playing in Michigan right now? Uh, is Gage an MSO? That's that's about it. That's, yeah. Yeah. Gage through <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Through yeah. Outside of that, um, they're not playing in this space. So when we look at our company and what are we doing and what's our goals, I think, frankly, we're looking at Massachusetts as uh, let's limit exposure. Let's stick to those two retail out there. And frankly, if the right operator wanted to take those from our hands, I think we'd explore that because our story at this point in time, you know, is a Michigan one. Um, and we think that there is a very uh, successful story to be told when the consolidation continues to occur in Michigan. And, you know, the larger, whether it takes the federal legalization event to occur and you get other parties that aren't these MSOs that I'm thinking about, or frankly, there's just no more new states coming online where Michigan becomes the most accretive opportunities. They're going to start, you know, coming here. And it's our, you know, goal and objective to be sitting uh, well positioned within this state um, and really make that our story because, you know, as you let in, Nick, we, we are all Michigan people. Uh, we are a Michigan company in uh, scaling for companies that, you know, frankly, uh, are not mm, capitalized to the extent where, you know, you really can invest in a tremendous amount of local resources. Um, that would be mm -hmm. maybe a lesson learned from, from um, you know, existing as a multi-state operator for some time. 
is you can't you can't manage it from out of state. You have to really invest in the team locally um, that is going to be able to and go to those meetings, the municipal meetings, and all of that stuff, and get to know the mayor and Gladhand. Are there? So you mentioned you know um, Massachusetts was largely opportunistic. If you know, is there a dream state that if, you know, if someone came knocking on your door that that you would entertain another opportunity there or you really are, you know, firmly committed to to, you know, your future as a Michigan uh, operator? I mean, look, we, we, we certainly always are are open and, and entertaining conversations, but Michigan right now um, is is a, a battleground of a state and it requires a tremendous amount of focus from everybody on the team here to do what we need to do here. So in terms of, you know, the only person that would frankly drive a lot of those conversations uh, on our executive team or who would lead them would probably be myself. And I would tell you that less than 5% of my time is really allocated towards those types of opportunities because there's, there's really just still a windfall of opportunity that sits right in front of us. Um, we don't think that anybody in Michigan can call themselves a, a winner or is feeling very comfortable right now um, with where they're positioned in the state. It's still for the taking uh, because, frankly, to that last point, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of capital coming to the state, even early on. Um, there's certainly a few private companies here that that uh, raised a good amount and have a tremendous amount of scale. Um, but we don't see any reason why we continuing down the path we're continuing on um, building a good, strong business. And most importantly, uh, continuing to rely on our products and our brand and creating that consumer trust and, and the consistency of what we're doing is going to carry on uh, uh, for quite some time. And we mentioned the Michigan story to add a bit more color. The cool part is being which is true, the first Michigan-founded company to become an MSO, uh, it's still part of our story, no matter what. Uh, and that's something that, you know, and to your question, hey, what are the attractive markets? Well, hey, once an MSO, then, you know, you can do it again, and we know what that looks like. But as Brian intimated, we have to make sure we take care of home. And there's an incredible amount of opportunity in the home in the home state right now. And so we've reached that inflection point. You mentioned, are you going to drive resources further in Massachusetts or do we see the writing on the wall? And we're not alone there. There's other operators that are in, in similar shoes um, that we're going to scale up large grows and say, maybe not. Right. And and when you look at the retail stack and how that works in potential you know, longer term acquisition um, or any type of m and activity, then that retail stack can become an encumbrance as, as brand as opposed to something that actually is attractive, you know, depending on who that potential partner and what suitors might actually look like. So, um, you know, that being said, all realities are open to us, even with respect to Massachusetts, but we are being intentionally more nimble uh, about finding potential partners of somebody, another operator's better suited must take that off our hands in regard that that makes more sense for them than great. Um, but we have to make sure things make sense for our overall focus of the organization. Well, we'll make sure to put your emails in the show notes in case, uh, in case anyone's like, I'm on the market. <laughs> Love to see it. Yeah. Look, my advice to them was be, I hope they have their feet on the ground there. Go minute. Yeah. You got to yeah. find like some UMass grads or yeah. Yeah. Some so Amherst grads. Yep. There you go. They can walk right by the Amherst store. It's right there by, you know, you may right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a great location, actually. There's like six different colleges there too. I mean, oh yeah. 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 
It's great. Great. No, they are, they're, 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 yeah. You, you got, I'm here for you. I'm ready. <laughs> Put me in coach. Um, I want to sh- shift gears a little bit to something Jerome, you brought up earlier um, when you first came on to pleasantries was um, kicking off the DE and I initiative uh, for the company. Um, Ann and I have, have, have talked to several people uh, in the industry that have been longtime advocates and, they're either still on the advocacy side or they've jumped into, you know, being an operator in the space. But one thing that's been consistent is that there's been a lot of criticism about DEI in the space that none, a lot of these programs aren't really fulfilling what they were first set out to do. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues that, that lead to that. But I'm, I'm interested, Jerome, what is it that, that you guys are doing at Pleasant Trees to that DEI focused and, and how is that part of the ethos of the company? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. I think because who we are, cannabis people that got in the business, again, not business people that got into cannabis, we have a unique appreciation for the history of prohibition and regulation around all things cannabis. Um, I'll, I'll spin back to a, a comment I shared earlier on who I think the duty is on when it comes to this term called social equity. So what is social equity? I think we just like to unpack that very quickly. It is our term of art in industry, essentially for DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I always mention, I will give her credit ever since she shared it with me, Anquanette Sarfo, who another kind of early pioneer in our in our industry. She's a former TV newscaster, local station here in Michigan, who had MS and health challenges, had to leave the chair, found that, hey, weed helps me, ended up opening a early medical dispensary that she then sold off um, to a company later. But I, we had her on for our podcast called Pleasant Talk some time ago. And we were talking about social equity. I said, what does that mean to you? And she said, very simple, social equity, social, the people, equity, give them a cut. And what does a cut look like? Well, our take on the cut, as I shared earlier, the responsibility is blended in our view between regulators, legislators, and operators. Now, responsibility is not fault, is not blame. It's nobody's fault for the war on drugs. Those folks ain't around no more for the most part, right? Uh, And maybe some around for its enforcement. But needless to say, um, I think we just have to acknowledge the past in step one. Okay, hey, we have an acknowledgement, we have an awareness of where we come from. And then what accountability can we take? Is this a benefit and a blessing to be in this space? And that's what we, we understand. And then what action can we take? So, Nick, to answer your question more directly, our action is codified in a social equity plan um, that I had the privilege of developing shortly after I came on board along with our leadership team. And it's a four-pillar plan. And because we want to basically focus those efforts because social equity can be a number of ways. Is it a cutting a check here? Is it showing up at this event here? Is it raising awareness there? We needed to focus those efforts. And um, basically our plan was that under one of these four pillar points, um, the, you know, can be an umbrella for everything we do. Uh, the first one, number one, is called access to value chain. What that means is we are in a unique position where we're a job creator. As a job creator, we have the opportunity to put people in positions. So one of the things I love about what we do and in my job in particular is I get to help when we're making some of those judgment calls that, hey, something's on your record shouldn't be a scarlet letter. Oh, frankly, at a possession charge, get probably looking for you in particular, right? You probably know what you're doing. Hey, by the way, come on in, right? And so it allows us to be very intentional in our hiring efforts and partnering with HR and the rest of our team, uh, as opposed to most companies, they won't even get a look at their resume. 
they won't even get an interview in the first place. So creating the value chain. Another way to do access to value chain is again, being nimble. Brian talked about equity and an equity stack, a lot of friends and family. Well, guess what? We get to be intentional about who those folks are. Right. So we create friends. You talk about increasing black and brown ownership in the industry. Well, we had a chance to be able to do so through funding events and things of that nature. Right. Of mm-hmm. being intentional around that and, and pairing that with some of our social equity initiatives. Right. So that is very, very important, you know, for how we can help those access the value chain that were the most disproportionately impacted mm-hmm. by prohibition and criminalization. Um, the number two uh, pillar is uh, legislation and advocacy, right? So legislation and advocacy is kind of what it says on the surface where you think about um, this is the stuff that sort of makes the news, right? When you say, all right, you know, this person and that such and such, that case, you know, where'd it go? Um, so where, you know, where, what tentacles did it have to it? Um, and that can be work of us, you know, working with local organizations, right? Lobbying them ultimately for change, right? We need to see legal change. Sometimes it's working with uh, legislators on different things that they may be doing. So that one, again, can have a variety um, uh, of tentacles to it. So legislation and advocacy is something that we, again, we really make it a point to take on head on. That's involved as actually going up and showing up working with organizations such as Last Prisoner Project, which advocates for the least 40,000 or so nonviolent cannabis offenders that are still in prison today, uh, which is super disappointing. Um, and the challenge I think we see at the federal level is that, unfortunately, that gets blended in with the commercial conversation. And the reason you see some of these bills that don't get any progress is because there's one group, the social justice group that cares a ton about that, and the other group cares a ton about banking laws and whatnot. They're not mutually exclusive, but then they get put on the same slate and then the slate doesn't move. So that's a challenge. Um, and actually I flipped those, that's our third pillar. Our second pillar is actually education. Um, so education um, for us is twofold. What that means is internal education. Now remember, who am I letting access the value chain? Might be people that didn't get a chance before. Right. Might be people that um, we're so taken under our wing. Might be people that, you know, are reentering citizen. Well, we see as a duty to build into those folks. Right. Pour into them in such a way. If you're with us for, you know, another two months or two years, doesn't matter. Or for the lifetime of our company, we want to pour into you. It's also external education. There's a ton of stigma. So we try to do our job on destigmatizing. So an example might be certain partners you work with, like a, a Relief Michigan. Well, we've done campaigns where we say both of us love trees, right? You love those trees. We love these trees. Um, so you're getting the conversation around cannabis in the communities that might not ever consider it. You're taking away the so-called bad stamp that was all associated with. Uh, and the final and fourth pillar is called good neighbor. That's for us a bit of a catch-all. It's uh, any and everything that might be something where you're, hey, you're actually financially supporting a cause or some mission, which we try to not just do things that are just checks, because I think there's a bit of detachment. There's no personal relationship with it. Um, but we've done it. Uh, by way of example, we worked with in the city of Hamtramck, store we opened there, um, has a very diverse community and has a significant Ukrainian-American community. Mm-hmm. So the Ukrainian-American Museum of, uh, of History is located near our store. So we did an initiative with them where we had a special promotion. We donated a portion of sales proceeds, I believe, from that weekend, you know, directly through that museum, which is helping getting money over to refugees. So, wow. you know, it's a variety of, of angles to it. And again, to run the gamut of the list, it would sound like we're all over the place, which is why I always leave the social equity plan, because one or multiple of the things falls there. Um, we also have internally a social equity committee um, that I chair and helps meet on a monthly basis which is also connected to uh, a nonprofit that we actually formed on our own as well. Um, again, relative to some of those funding efforts, we try to find those that you want to stake in our company. It's not just that you think we can do what we do well, but you care about what right. we do uh, at the exact same time in those initiatives. 
so yeah, for a variety of ways of, of skinning that cat. And it's a lot of work to do. And we are just one player, but our hope is that we can inspire change and also simultaneously carry on parallel walk. You know, you guys are, and Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, among, among the first uh, companies that we've talked to that you've basically taken that, that, that check box of, you know, are, have you, um, you know, been arrested for possession or whatever off of that, uh, work form, work order form or application is the word I'm trying to get out of my mouth. Um, you know, and we, we have actually suggested it to other clients and their HR folks are always like, no, we can't do that for like all of these different reasons, but it sounds like you guys have accomplished that. I think that the challenge is that people focus too much on the checkbox. I don't care yeah. if the checkbox is there. It's what do you do when you see it? Yeah. Uh, because you're going to run a background check no matter anyway. what of some right. sort. So the, the challenge of the checkbox is a deterrent because people then won't apply because they're afraid once they yeah. check it. Hey, look, in our industry, you're going to have to run the check. So, you know, it's okay. And we get to make those judgment calls. So our focus is more on the interpretation and treating everything with a case-by-case basis with some emphasis. Um, and one thing I'll note here, you know, our Mount Clemens store that we opened up, which is provisioning center right now, well, Mount Clemens, a lot of people may not know in Michigan, they think, oh, it's the suburbs, not Detroit, right? So no, no poor folks live over there. Well, around, this, around the corner is projects, right? Right, from where we're nearby. We worked with a leader of a, of a local mentoring group and runs community center who he himself had a former cannabis charge, had it expunged, does great work in the community. So when we were hiring people for the store, who do we source? And we mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. got applicants to flow through because it makes sure we're actually hiring from the community. Well, the education pillar, you know, it's not only that it, it, so tie that back now to the education pillar. And, you know, one of the favorite parts of my job that I genuinely enjoy doing is giving municipality tours. Uh, We have an open door policy with any municipality anywhere in the country for that matter that wants to send through their, you know, police department or their city council Mm. or their administration or whoever it is and just be able to educate them, walk them through where they can see the faces of these people that we employ. And one of the things that I typically do harp on because it is part of, you know, frankly, um, improving the perceived benefit to everybody involved is look at all these jobs that we're able to provide. And most of these people would not even be considered at other jobs because of that checkbox. And frankly, we encourage it because we don't think, you know, we want to intentionally find those people that have are having a hard time getting employed because of their cannabis past, because it's, there's no such thing as a cannabis past. It should have right. never been illegal. They should have never gotten charged for right. it. So we, we all have one, just some of us exactly. haven't been arrested for it. <laughs> exactly. So if we can give those people, you know, targeted legs up and right. it goes a long way, I think, showing these you know, municipalities that do deal with unemployment rates. And part of the reasons they look at it is because, well, we have unemployable people that live in our, no, you don't. That's not a thing. Uh, There are plenty of people that are very employable if the employers would give them the opportunity to work. Um, So, you know, I, I love that aspect of it, you know, frankly, more than any other is just the shock that they get on their face when they walk around and they see, oh my God, this facility has 70 happy, smiling people that may not look like me or may not look what I expected them to look like, but they're people. Yeah. That's (laughs) brilliant that you got. And I'm just thinking like, you know, open it up to like the, the workers at unemployment who like are seeing these people come in and out and like bring them on a tour and be like, this, this could be the future for some of, you know, the Michiganders you're working with. Um, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, 
was before we get into like the future and the untold story and stuff like that, I want to see what you guys think about safe banking. Does it happen this year? <laughs> this year, they only got two months left. So that's what I think. Okay. So does it happen in two months? I know we got some things on the slate. Yeah. Um, now, I will admittedly share that I'm a little biased. I just attended Michigan's Cannabis Law Conference uh, over the weekend up north. <clears throat> and we always have a you know, our, our, our legislative updates, federal updates, a gentleman named John Hudak is out of D.C., always comes and mm-hmm. gives his what's the latest and greatest. And I forget, he got posed this question. It wasn't around banking specifically, around federal legalization last year. He said, all right, five years from now, over under, we're still having this conversation. He took the over, which was interesting. Um, and everyone goes, eek. Now, the irony of it is this, though, something doesn't get talked about. I know I'm kind of pivoting from banking because I don't I don't think so quite yet. I think the challenge, I think you've got some conflated bills that they have to distill them down to their discrete parts, um, as opposed to trying to make everybody happy at one time, Bill, very difficult, very difficult to get that, get that across the aisle. Um, You know, the challenge, anyone thinks about federal legalization, but guess what, if you, and without taking people into the whole commerce clause lesson, I apologize to the professor, I mean, I won't pull us into that normal (laughs) commerce clause, but what I will say is that if you immediately, let's call it, put down the walls and borders between states and these individual islands, you connect bridges between them, then what happens is you will cause these industries to fold in on themselves. So local markets need an opportunity, frankly, to continue to mature, right? So that's an interesting part. Yeah. The moment of, say, a more mature market can drop ship pounds into an immature market, there's no chance for the immature market to have any local business. Right local business operators. So, um, but there are ways to do that. I mean, and a lot of the current bills on, this, on the slate are also saying, well, yeah, but we'll leave certain things still to the state. So does banking happen in the next calendar year? Let's call it. God, I hope so. Um, but yeah. we'll take it away. I, I'm agreeable with you. I mean, I, I think as for certain, it will come in pieces, you know, between safe banking, decriminalization, interstate commerce, uh, you know, full legal, it, it's going to come piece by piece as opposed to one big package because it's just too challenging to, to yeah. mm-hmm. do once. I do think safe banking um, is probably uh, the first to go only because I, I just don't think, I, I think that the states that legalize it are going to start applying more pressure um, to the federal government because like one of the, here's just like a little thing that people probably don't consider. And I know nobody at federal government considers this, but us as pleasantries, and I don't know how other Michigan operators do this or other operators throughout the country do this, but we have to have a separate payroll company. And that separate payroll company is a masked company that, you know, you have to punch through just so that our employees can go to Bank of America and get a mortgage on a home or get a loan on a car. Like the, the fact that some of these states are starting to get to tens of thousands of cannabis employees that literally... Yeah. You know, our concern, like I still to this day get nervous walking into a bank uh, and just having the teller do the small talk conversation with me about what do you do? Because I don't have the time to go find a new bank to relocate all of my personal finances. But the fact that, you know, a lot of the institutions, I still hear stories of people getting thrown out of their banks um, because their paycheck comes from a cannabis company or because their you know, income comes from a cannabis company. It, it's just so problematic and so costly to administer. And, you know, it's disruptive of people's lives. And that to me is one of those little like undertold or unknown things that people have to impact or are impacted with at the ground level. 
is us having to take a lot of time and energy making sure our employees can live their lives and mm -hmm. unencumbered because they right. work in the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's another one of those just unfair things that cannabis businesses have to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. like we've we've heard it for years, but yeah, if safe if safe, ba if safe baking can can help solve those issues, then yeah, bring it on. Oh, there's a million issues with banking. I was just one small little example that. I think, again, it's just more meaningful that is going to actually cause people to not just talk and look for their special interests. But it's like, right. man, you have now millions of employees that have a hard time living their life like a normal American. Yeah. And once safe banking drops, you know, the hope is that other, as you mentioned, adjacent supportive industries also start pouring more into cannabis because they realize, I mean, that's the it's a big hesitation. No one wants to be the first to be the guinea pig. So yeah. the moment that opens up, you know, I think it's just going to be like a dam. I mean, the truth just burst and it's going to start flowing because um, now you get the benefit of, you know what? Yeah, we'll jump in that space too. Right. I mean, a, a silly example is like Northwestern Mutual. I've had short-term disability, long-term disability coverage and like extra life insurance for years. Yeah. Law firm, in-house counsel. We, we brought on for our employees here. So great value add to our people. Right. Question, I was like, oh, I still got my old one. Should I do the one here? Like, no, keep it. And now the only reason I can even have it Northwestern Mutual, because I'm grandfathered in, they said, if you ever had to reapply, we'd have to. Oh. Because we're doing it based on the old applicant because you're at wow. that cannabis company. And we actually know it. So again, there's so many just yeah. silly vendor and adjacent, you know, sort of services that we can't avail ourselves or our actual people in the personal lives. Yeah. So I think this plays into, we, we just have a couple more questions for you guys left, but you know, sure. that I think was a, a great undertold um, aspect of, you know, the difficulties that a lot of employees and these businesses face when it comes to, to banking and stuff. But, you know, when you guys are looking at the front page of the Detroit news or the free press or, you know, wall street journal, New York times, is there, you know, outside of that story we just talked about, is there another story within the cannabis space that you think is, is, not getting enough attention or um, being under told, or you would like to see more coverage be put on it. And uh, Jerome, let's start with you on this one. So um, my, mine is for twofold. The, the first part of it is, and maybe it feels a bit broken record and not under told given my background, but I think it's still under told at the larger scale, the way it needs to be. So again, I'm a native Detroiter, born and raised uh, in the city, it's in the city, been the state my essentially my entire life. I ran again, went went to Michigan State with, with Brian and Randy. But again, how small of the world, but how big that school is, we didn't meet till after school, right? So we were there the exact same years, graduated the same years. It was crazy. Um, I did the victory lap, but did that fifth year victory lap before law school because <laughs> you just gotta you gotta mean it, right? You gotta yeah. really want that degree. Um, but having been here my whole life and knowing the, the history of our interchange development as a native Detroiter. Uh, and a black American, I think that the story we talk about a lot is the underrepresentation in our industry from those that were hit the hardest by enforcement. And it's no secret that those were poor communities, those are communities of color, right? Um, you know, I, the story we don't tell enough about is I think people focus so much on on the ownership numbers. How many people own this, own that? We're still not telling a lot, not telling enough about that, number one, right? That's undertold. Mm -hmm. What's also undertold are other strides. Um, I'm very fortunate to sit in the seat that I am in, at, a, at a larger operator in the state. Um, apparently, when I came in Pleasant Trees, and it was a storyline that while I embraced it, I shunned it a little bit. And that is that I was the first black in-house counsel of a cannabis operator in the state. Cool. But I said, if I'm the last, it's a problem. Now, Pleasant Trees just so happened to get to hire the second. 
right? Who was with us on our legal team for a while before he went back outside counsel. Um, and I'd like to think someone, Ben shared this and I'm it's only going to the podcast. So uh, when we were at our cannabis law conference, Ben and I, again, was outside counsel for us. Again, one of, one of the original folks came on as former CLO and chatting me up and trying to tell somebody about me. He said, hey, you know, he's the first black in-house counsel of an MSO. I said, no, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe I am. I don't know. But either way, I'm finding myself doing a, not a shunning of that, but a can't be the last. So I think we have to find opportunities to increase representation, not just at the ownership level. That matters. But everybody doesn't want to own. Everybody doesn't want to be a CEO. Everybody doesn't want to even do what I do, what Brian does, or Randall, anybody. Um, some people just still want participation. So I think we have to tell more of those stories about how companies, not just us, are trying to give more, more folks inclusion efforts, right? And it's not because it needs to be a headline, and we struggle with that because we're not the company to borrow one of Randy's adages that wants to be filming ourselves giving a homeless person a dollar. Right. We don't want to do that yeah. necessarily. But you have to raise awareness to the issues that yeah. you are making strides when you work with organizations like 70 Million Jobs, which actually was founded by one of the former Wolves of Wall Street. Check it out. Uh, Richard uh, Branson, not Branson um, uh, or, or Branson, excuse me. That gentleman uh, found his organizations all for reentering citizens. Right. Mm. Organizations like that in Massachusetts, and you're giving people chances. So that's increasing your demographics, increasing you know the diversity throughout the pipeline. So we got to tell more of those stories and how companies are trying to do it. And because when you tell those stories, again, my belief is that it's both an encouragement and inspiration to others do the same. And frankly, it calls some other ones out that ain't doing it. We know we got a lot of work to do. We're never going to put ourselves on some mantle of look at we got us figured out, like, you know, yeah. grow us. Nah, we ain't, we ain't like that. But we know we got a lot, a lot more that can be done. And I think, you know, to tell more of the story of how companies are trying to be part of that change, Instead of just pointing the finger and blaming, that happens a lot, right? Um, and, and my team knows here, I joked with them when I came, I said, you guys know I'm not token black guy, right? Uh, just as a heads up. And they're like, bet, we, we don't expect you to be, dog. Like, be yourself and be and be everything that we want to hold us accountable as a unit, which is why our relationship is so great on that front. Um, but knowing, knowing that, that also means that there's a lot more that other folks can do. And if we can somehow create and inspire some change around that, um, then, then we should definitely do it and lean into it more. So I want to tell more of that story of, the strides that are being made um, and, and how more of us can, if we all carry our pail of water, we're never going to undo the war on drugs. People will never get those mm. years back. They'll never get the, the lives have been severely impacted. But every time we hire somebody that wouldn't have got a chance to get hired anywhere else, let alone a cannabis company, hopefully you're impacting a family and generations to come. Right. Yeah. I love that. Brian, what yeah. about you? If I were to take a different spin on it, undertold, uh, perhaps, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to apply a Michigan angle to it, but undertold here it. in Michigan, I, I just, you know, I, I think that there's still a tremendous amount of bad actors. And the reality is, is us as an industry who is trying to legitimize itself, uh, needs to police itself and needs to appreciate compliance and structure and trust. And, you know, when I am, perusing weed maps and I see flower testing at 48, 49%, I question that. And, and, you know, you start, you're seeing it more and you're seeing it at the national level related. Uh, I want to say it was Arkansas that had a, a RICO case recently on, on potency and overinflating potencies. And it just doesn't do us any good as an industry. Uh, potency, you know, in my mind, is still driving sales too much. And it's a number that is, uh, and sometimes bought, not actually produced. 
Um, and you see that just because you see some of these results that that aren't feasible. I mean, by a scientific you know uh, perspective on it, you can't have that much matter of what you're holding in your hand be THC. I'm staring at it. It's not like it's 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 just tough. Uh, and the reality is is for a company like us who really prides itself on um, uh, maintaining a high compliance reputation, you know, no warnings, no uh, fines from the state agency. We, we play within the book. If there's not any type of, you know, appreciation or upholding for that, all we're doing is, is passing the, the mistrust onto the consumer um, because we're creating consumers who aren't educated, who don't know about the product. I mean, why, you know, the world uh, should potency always drive where things are going to, but you're, you're fostering a system where that's all that matters to the consumer, because that's what the marketing's focusing on. That's what we're just doing it wrong. And I, I think that more attention needs to be put into um, just frankly, consumer education uh, and destigmatizing it. But that first starts with trust, because if they don't trust where the information is coming from, then it's irrelevant. Um, the potency thing drives me up a wall, though. I just I think I mean, of the, the last time you went to go buy some spirits for the evening and you said, give me the strongest stuff you got. And you walked out with a case of Bacardi 151 looking to have a good time that night. Like, it's just, yeah, we need to get more towards, you know, educating the patients uh, and consumers on terpenes and the effects and the effects of, you know, the plant and the power of the plant and what it can do. Um, and really start to create products that are based on that, because that's that in my mind is where it is 10 years from now. It mm. should be there next year if we were doing this properly and, you know, folks were approaching it the right way. But it is, you know, a strive for the dollar. And right now, potency drives dollars and people find ways to, yeah. you know, maneuver the system to get some of these potencies that the world has never seen before. And all of a sudden in 2022, you know, we're exponentially growing more potent weed that's 50% content is THC. It's like, wait a minute, let's, let's right size this a little bit. So well, frankly, I'm happy to see all these articles popping up about potency shopping and, and inflated potencies because we need to gain the trust of the consumer. So talk about some of the, you know, you, you talked about product um, and, and the future. And, you know, I am a little sick of seeing the like, 500 milligram packs of things. Um, is, is there anything, what are you guys looking forward to in the next year? Any fun new products coming up? What's, yeah. what's happening? Yeah, we, we have a lot of fun new products coming out. I mean, I, I mentioned that we, you know, really pride ourselves and found a niche in, in production and manufacturing excellence. You know, one of the things that we do very, very well is solventless uh, hash rosin. Um, we, you know, it is a, certainly a connoisseur's product. It is more of a, a niche consumer, but we've found a way to really lean into it and, and, you know, take that segment on by scale. Um, so we're, we're revamping our disposable solventless hash, uh, cartridge, which is just, you know, one of our favorite products, but, I guess dovetailing into our manufacturing and, and production excellence, what I'm most excited for and, and most bullish on is our beverage production facility. Um, so, you know, uh, taking a step back uh, in my past life, I 
uh, learned an important lesson that if you you know want to go to do something, but you don't know how to do it, just partner with somebody that knows how to do it because you probably already have your plate full with other things. So, you know, we're again, cannabis cultivators, we're manufacturers, we're uh, uh, quickly improving on a retail footprint as we expand that. Um, but we don't make beverages, you know, we grow cannabis. Uh, and, you know, so what can we do if we wanted to get into this beverage space, which we all, you know, strongly believe in, um, we partnered, we partnered with a, a company called Blake's Hard Cider out of uh, Armada, Michigan here locally. They're, I want to say the number two hard cider company uh, in the nation. And they, you know, are beverage producers, they're beverage formulators, they know how to put beverage in a can at scale. Um, so frankly, we created a joint venture with them. Uh, we, you know, pooled resources, we put roughly three point six million dollars of, of capital, uh, you know, collectively into a beverage production facility and developing a line which will be able to, to produce beverages at scale. Um, our first product that we're coming out with actually launches on October 28th. Uh, it is a brand of seltzer beverages called Highly Casual. It's meant for a low dose consumer. It's a two milligram product that's sold in a four pack of, of cans. Um, and because of the infrastructure that we invested in on the front end, um, we're going to be able to bring this product to market at a very, very uh, um, uh, cost-effective way uh, where it is something that we want to be available on every shelf at all times at a price point that's affordable, where it can replace the LaCroix that's sitting in your fridge because you like the benefits of this. And the beauty of partnering you know, with the beverage producer um, is they taste really, really good. Um, you know, they are very comparable to any non-dose seltzer that you would like to enjoy if you're a seltzer drinker. Um, they don't have any type of bite or any type of, you know, oily distillate uh, uh, flavor. It's not sticking to the side of the can. <laughs> no, no, we have a, a really good SLP related to nano emulsification and it's being blended well. Um, but we think it's really just the tip of the, the iceberg with the segment. Uh, it's a new segment in Michigan. The state just put out the bulletin about a year ago related to allowing it in the process that they put in place to um, uh, break into the market is very strenuous. So it is the first time that the state actually has, you know, a high barrier of entry to being able to produce this product. And the ones that we've seen in the marketplace today um, uh, do not seem to have the scale, you know, to necessarily pick up demand. So as a, a producer and with my producer hat on, we, we aren't looking at this purely from our brand perspective. You know, this is something from a business uh, standpoint and strategy standpoint. We want to own the refrigerator in Michigan, whether we're making our beverages, whether we're producing for others from out of state. Um, you know, the facility is just a beautiful 15,000 square foot canning line that you would, um, you know, anticipate would be able to serve, frankly, uh, not just Michigan, but really the entire Midwest. Um, and we did that very intentionally. We're big believers in the beverage segment. Um, we, it, it, as cannabis continues to get destigmatized and further and further normalized, um, cannabis, since you know, as far as I've experienced and my experiences with it, has always been a, frankly, a, a, a social and a community-based 
you know, uh, 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 plant, yeah. um, you know, you, you are with people. There yeah. is no social experience of eating a gummy or eating no. a gummy. Um, Well, so, there is. And it's like, I eat the gummy and then I go to yeah. bed. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Good night. Yeah. It's just, it's over in a matter of seconds. Yeah. For, for this, we really see this as a product more that people can go out for a night out and it can be their alcohol replacement. Yeah. Um, they, and that two uh, milligram is like a great, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a great idea. And yeah. then I guess to further emphasize why I'm excited about it is because I think we're, we, we plan to use this as a tool to get away from the potency drive. Mm. And what I mean by that is um, our, our four pack of two milligram seltzers is going to MSRP initially um, at $18 a unit. Uh, and that's for eight milligrams. And somebody just say $18 for eight milligrams is what people are used to saying when they're looking at their math and their gummies and uh -huh. for their gummies. When I come out with my five milligram highly casual and my 10 milligram highly casual, and those are both going to be sold in the same four packs, my price points across the board are going to be the same. Um, so it's more pick, pick your dose. That's right for you. I'm not going to charge you more because you're buying higher potency stuff because the reality is it doesn't cost me greatly more to produce it. And it's part of this effort to, you know, don't go run your math on what's the price per, per milligram. Cause that's not the way that this product is intended. But I also, but but I also feel like that's off-putting to people who are looking to enter the, the who are who are maybe kind of curious and like they see all of these like crazy edibles and fifty percent strains and all of this stuff and like I don't know the the two milligram can of you know spiked Lacroix sounds delicious to me you know and, and that's a very yeah I mean that's a very good like you know you're catering to you know to to a market that's really like that's there. And there's this very tiny sliver of people like who can handle <laughs> that, that very high potency. And like, there's only so much they're going to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, and, so, and we're going to meet that market too, where, you know, highly casual is the first and, and we, and we plan to have products there that range in dosage from two milligram to 10 milligram and sold in, in you know, different unit sizes. Um, the next brand that comes out of that beverage facilities is a play on pleasantries. It's it's pleasanties. Uh, oh, nice. And that'll be more for, you know, your heavy hitter consumer because it is tied to a, a cannabis existing brand versus, you know, this brand highly casual, which is new to market and really trying to find that can of curious um, type of person, that person looking for the alcohol replacement, right. um, whatever it may be. But pleasanties will range anywhere from 10 milligram, um, you know, to, to and up. So it will still meet, you know, each of the consumers. I think what makes us excited is just frankly the, um, the structure that we have in place with our joint venture partners to really be able to scale up beverages and have that wherewithal to not make some of those early mistakes. Um, where we can get in early on the onset and frankly on the segment. It's similar to what we did with Solventless, um, as I mentioned earlier. At one point in time, uh, we had 56% of the Solventless uh, market share in Michigan. You know, that's down to about 21, 22% today, but that's still, you know, think about it significant. Mm -hmm. And it is because, you know, we went narrow and deep in something that not everybody had the ability to do and, you know, created the, 
the products and, and team that was going to be able to execute on that. We're, we're doing that again with beverages. And, and frankly, I think that's what we're most excited about from a product standpoint um, is really being able to, to make an impact there. Awesome. Well, you know, this episode's coming out on the 27th. So for everybody listening on the 27th, go out to the pleasantries in, in either Michigan or Massachusetts, get these new drinks. Uh, are they going to be available in Massachusetts yeah, as well? There'll be no crossing state, no lines. cross state lines. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll so just in Michigan, <laughs> in Michigan, go get them Enjoy them for the Halloween weekend. Um, yeah, that's uh, perfect timing. Come in. Yeah, perfect costume. timing. Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian, Jerome, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. Uh, we'd love to have you guys on again in the future. Um, and we'll be sure to follow everything that's going on with pleasantries. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to have us uh, excited to, you know, keep things moving here. We'll talk again soon. Yeah. And Nick, incredible time. Can't wait to do this again in the future. Hopefully we're talking about how beverages are going. So it'll be really, really fun. Thanks for love having it. us. Thank you. Thanks again to our guests, Brian Wickersham and Jerome Crawford of Pleasant Trees. To learn more about Pleasant Trees and follow all their new products and store openings, uh, visit www.enjoypleasanttrees.com. And as always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann, Chris, Lewis, or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We'd love your feedback, guest ideas, topics, all that stuff inundate us. We love it. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush and your favorite podcatcher. That's one and a half takes, Shay. One and a half. Cannabis! Cannabis!